This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty Father, we come before you in worship of your glory in this Easter season. We ask that you, who have illumined us by baptism, would make the grace of our baptism redound into our minds so that we may know you, the better to love you and praise you worthily. We ask the special intercession of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Benedict as we approach the mysteries of the worship that you have instituted in your Son. We ask all these things in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace beyond beauty. Thomism and the liturgical movement. So, I have on your handout a little outline and some texts that will be useful more towards the end than towards the beginning. But this little outline hopefully can orient us um, across a sort of wide variety of topics that I'm going to be throwing at you. Some of you will probably be familiar with things like the liturgical movement, but others maybe not. So, I have as number one, the Benedictine liturgical movement and the Leonine Thomistic revival. So I want to emphasize to start that there is a difference in the religious orders which kind of inspire these two different terms, Thomism and the liturgical movement. And then I'll eventually get to talking about how grace and beauty might interact more profitably in terms of these two things. Okay, so there's kind of four Four things at work, grace, beauty, Thomism, liturgical movement. Okay. So following the French Revolution, which saw the destruction of many religious orders, the newly formed National Constituent Assembly prohibited all religious vows. This was on February 13, 1790. So going into the 19th century, religious vows were illegal in France. The monastery of Salem, whose occupants had been forced out in March 1791, was commandeered as a country residence for a certain Henri Lenoir Chanteloup. And the archives of the monastery of Salem were burned in a civic bonfire on the 14th of July in 1794. In the beginning of the 19th century, then, the church is sort of creeping back into the light in France. Pope Gregory XVI raised the rank of the former priory of Salem, it was before a priory, to that of an abbey. So it became the Abbey of Salem, and he made it the head of the French congregation of the Order of St. Benedict, so the Benedictines in France. And a man named Prosper Louis Pascal Guéranger was appointed the abbot. So Guéranger is often identified as the father of something that is called the liturgical movement. The liturgical movement continues to this day. You'll see some people calling something the new liturgical movement, but in a certain sense, it's all of a piece with a movement that begins under the aegis of Salem and a Benedictine reform, bringing the Benedictines who had been crushed by the French Revolution back into existence. So Guéranger was a talented theologian. He was an intelligent priest who then decided to become a Benedictine, to bring the Benedictines back into existence. This happened with different religious orders in France, the sort of re-founding of these ancient religious orders. There was a re-founding of the Dominicans as well, a famous preacher named La Cordaire, similar situation where sort of a diocesan priest who learns about the ancient inheritance and wants to restore it. So these projects of restoration are going on. And one of the biggest and most influential in the 19th century, and going into the 20th, is this Benedictine reform of Salem. So associated with this is Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant is treated as something which is of immeasurable value to the church's worship, which has a place in the worship of Catholics, and then especially this emphasis on the Romanness of the Benedictine tradition. So 
emphasizing the Roman rite, one thing that had happened was certain sort of French forms had become dominant because of the patriotic spirit of the revolution, trying to find a place in the home of the church so that the church could survive. You had these sort of Gallican liturgies, meaning basically sort of French in spirit. But the Benedictine influence of the Salem reforms brought this like Roman quality back. Okay, so you have uh, emphasis not only on that, but then also on re-educating or enlightening Catholics as to what they had and didn't know about. So bringing Catholics, inducting them into this sort of ancient, mysterious tradition of things like chant, but also the whole order of the church year, the liturgy. Okay, so this is something that had legs. Uh, through the 19th century and into the 20th century, you have people who pick this back up in different places. In Germany, you have a monastery called Maria Locke and an influential theologian named Odo Kazel, who really emphasized the mystery religion quality of the sacraments and the liturgical worship that should make that mystery real. Okay. But again, it's a Benedictine kind of host that this liturgical movement lives within. Okay. So these men, uh, these monks and priests who are involved in pushing the liturgical movement are not what you would call Thomists. So Thomism is something which is, after the Council of Trent, sort of everywhere and nowhere. Thomas was kind of vindicated as the church's theologian in many ways in the high Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages. And it becomes the case that he informs the way that we think about everything, and yet you don't really need to necessarily read St. Thomas. So it seems that maybe people weren't really getting direct familiarity with Thomas, and there wasn't so much of a living debate or interpretive tradition outside of, like, some Dominicans. So Thomism, during the time of the liturgical renewal, is not something which is front and center. You're not going to have the Thomistic Institute coming to your monastery to give talks about the latest developments on the question of nature and grace and sacramental causation. So it's not like you had this sort of pointed spear of Thomism going around and doing its work. It's more of a, an ambient way of thinking about the sacraments, about grace, about nature, and especially about philosophy. So that's a sketch of the liturgical movement, and I hope I give a sense of like the importance of the 19th century here. So the 19th century is often obscured, but it's a very cool century. A lot of great stuff happened in the 19th century. Another thing that happened in the 19th century. In 1879, Pope Leo XIII, not himself a Dominican, but taught by Dominicans and Jesuits and others, especially to revere St. Thomas, Pope Leo publishes an encyclical called Eterni Patris. So Eterni Patris, 1879, comes out. And what Eterni Patris says is that the church needs to reorient herself, particularly with regard to the study of philosophy, and needs to take St. Thomas as the preeminent guide. Okay, so this really emphasized Thomas can save philosophy in the church. So if you hear about Leonine Thomism, it sort of dates from this watershed document which flows into all of these different kinds of Thomism that result in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Many people have many different things to say about Eterni Patris, good and bad. The many different kinds of Thomism that you can find out there in the wild, growing in competition, trying to crowd one another out in the garden the lovely and wild garden of Thomism. It's more Germanic in that the, it's not as well, it's not an English garden. It's not all kind of compartmentalized and, and sculpted. It's more like wildflowers and, you know, the grass is not mowed. The grass itself 
is pushing things, uh, impressing itself on the senses. Okay, so, so the garden of Thomism, you could say, required this soil of the Leonine document, Eterni Patris. One thing that people will say is like, how often does Eterni Patris even quote St. Thomas? Not that many times. It quotes other thinkers and proposes Thomas as a sort of philosopher. In the model of, in some ways, the, uh, the early Christian apologists. So we see an enthusiasm for Thomas, but not yet a developed sense of who he is and what he wrote. That's what Leo wanted to create. So the Leonine revival included a project to restore the texts of St. Thomas and to understand what they are, you know, critical editions of the texts, and how to interpret them, how to receive the sort of Thomism that was everywhere but was not necessarily engaged with at the highest sort of academic levels. And then especially to implement it in seminaries so that it could be the way that priests learned the faith and taught everyone else because the scholarship of the church at the time was very much a clerical enterprise. Okay. So what I want to sort of suggest is that what you have in these two 19th century movements is two very important movements that are fairly separate. They've never really tangoed. This might be Thomism's fault um, in the sense that we're happy just doing our own thing often. You know, the, the Thomists, we have our places, we have our arguments, our vocabulary, you kind of have to pay a steep toll to maybe get in and get it in part of the conversation. So it might be Thomism that caused this distinction between like liturgical renewal movement and the different academic forms of Thomistic discourse. And I'm not apologizing. Far be it from me to apologize on behalf of Thomism. You know, we just like to sort of point out the causes of things. So I'm saying I think this might be... <laughs> An explanation, uh, not an apology. But, you know, maybe it's high time. I think in many ways there is a sense in which there are a few very vibrant young uh, movements in the church which, you know, have life now. One of them is the sort of traditional liturgy movement. One of them is the Thomistic revival. So I think it's like good that they get to know each other. And, uh, have conferences like this one. So, one place to start might be with a word that is used in the context of liturgy, but also in other contexts, and is very ambiguous, very important, but very ambiguous. The word is organic. Organic stuff is very popular, has been for maybe 10, 15 years. And one of the proposals about the liturgy is that it should have an organic development so that the liturgy given by Jesus to the apostles as a basic form of worship has a life which cannot be destroyed, but it's not always the same. It's an organic form of life, and so it changes. It evolves. So when we talk about which kinds of liturgy are legitimate or good, one of the criteria is, is there an organic development? This is a big kind of crisis problem question for nowadays where it seems like there were certain movements made in the 20th century where the, they happened too quickly. There's shock to the organic uh, constitution of this, this being that was the liturgy. And so the question is, how do you decide what's organic? It's ambiguous. Um, you know, there's no FDA which decides who gets to be organic in this case. It's more the judgment of not only the theologians, not only the clerical hierarchical church, but also the people. So there's a, an important sense in which the preference or the sense or the desire of people for one kind of liturgy or another is a theological principle in a certain sense, you can say. So thinking about organicism, organic development, Here's what Thomism can do for the liturgical movement. This phenomenon, the liturgical movement, is unorganized. 
That's not to say that it's disorganized. So it's not a judgment that something, you know, it's like this room is messy. It's not like that. It's not disorganized. Unorganized. It doesn't have a definite organization. You could say it's not yet organized. To organize something is not only to put it in order in terms of putting things in their place, but it also gives life. So when something is organized, it gives life. And you can think of this in a very intuitive way. Living things live and thrive because they have organs, and the organs are ordered to one another and to the whole by a formal principle, a principle that gives form, which is called a soul. So living things all have souls, in the opinion of Aristotle and Thomas. Plants, animals, and human beings have souls, which means that they have a form which is intelligible and orderly and rational, and it organizes the material parts of their body. So to be organized means to have your organs able to sort of work in conjunction with one another. And the genius of St. Thomas is that he was able to take a lot of stuff, a lot of authorities, a lot of contemporary questions, liturgical principles, and organize them in a way that gave life to everything. So everything found a sort of new life in Thomas's teaching, which is in some sense the teaching of God, the teaching of the scriptures organized and presented in a way that was reasonable and that gave health and vigor to thought and love. Okay, so that's the sort of idea of the genius of St. Thomas as an organizer. And, okay, so to think about the liturgical movement for a moment, admittedly, it does have vigor. It's got some definite uh, sap moving through it. But we might be concerned about the growth of it and that it might lack sustainability. Okay, so even in its healthier forms, the liturgical movement kind of naturally goes along with a certain dogmatic conservatism. So the same respect for the forms of the liturgy is afforded to the forms of belief, which is distinguishable from a political conservatism. So there's not necessarily one political form of life that goes along with this, but there's analogies. And the church has always had an uneasy relationship, especially with the latter. So one can see how attention to the rights of the church fits hand in glove, especially with traditional dogmatic definitions, so dogma, belief. And it's good to distinguish that from maybe political causes, which are important but are not necessary to the liturgical health and vigor of the church as a body which seeks to know God. Okay, so there's a certain, especially in the 20th century, um, skittishness towards definite political commitments on the part of the church. There are causes taken up, but as far as aligning oneself with a party or something like that, it's a big question. So, the champion of the liturgical tradition in our time is one Joseph Ratzinger, who as Pope promulgated Samorum Pontificum, giving life to a lot of liturgical movements. And this is a very interesting thing. I mean, I was received into the church in 2010, so 11 years ago. Doesn't feel like that long, but it was in a certain sense. And one way that you can tell is that when I was received into the church, the question of like, what are your liturgical preferences was not like something I had to answer. It was not like a really pressing question. There were people who wanted to talk about that stuff. I was interested in reading liturgical theology. But it wasn't this sort of question of like, what, what mass do you go to? <laughs> like, are, am I allowed to talk about, uh, you know, this? Okay, whatever. So I don't, even know, I don't even need to describe it. You know what I mean? So there's a certain way in which, like, since Samorum Pontificum, uh, a thousand flowers have bloomed. Uh, there's vigor and there's health. And so you could sort of point to Joseph Ratzinger as a liturgical theologian, a theologian of beauty and grace. And 
you can trace in him a theological lineage that has been giving pause to a lot of people. The lineage is that he is a vocal acolyte of Hans Urs von Balthasar. So von Balthasar was a Swiss theologian, and von Balthasar is a central load-bearing pillar in the theology of Ratzinger. So von Balthasar is sometimes called a virtuoso theologian. He studied German literature and philosophy. He's widely learned. He's written a ton of books, and they have a definite family resemblance to one another, but it can be very hard to sort of pin down a theological system of von Balthasar. But Ratzinger has affirmed again and again, and it's very important to him. The theology of von Balthasar demands a careful analysis, so I'm not going to try to, like, address von Balthasar. I'm not going to focus on it. But there is something that I do want to talk about in relation to von Balthasar. So moving on to uh, section two on your handout, the question of beauty, von Balthasar, Ratzinger, and a contemporary impasse. So in the 20th century, around the time, but before, but also during Vatican II, there was a sort of revival of like getting back to the church fathers, especially the Greek, sometimes the Syriac, or the Greek church fathers, And this idea of liturgical theology begins to take off. It takes root in America, in different, very practical kind of movements, like agrarian movements uh, that have to do with medieval revivals as well, but also especially the study of the church fathers. And so liturgical theology becomes a sort of hot topic in the university. You have an orthodox theologian named Shmeiman, who is well-known, and then a sort of Catholic counterpart named Aidan Kavanaugh, who is a Benedictine. The, the sort of current spokesman of that strain of liturgical theology is the theologian David Fagerberg. So Fagerberg is the bearer of the kind of Catholic wing of this theological, liturgical theology movement. Fagerberg has an interesting phrase that he has written a book about called liturgical asceticism. So being an ascetic, denying the flesh, seeking the spiritual. He says that liturgy and the theology that flows from liturgy require a certain moral discipline to appreciate, to hold up the sort of liturgical theological approach. So something that gets left behind in many ways is What are the moral principles at work in this movement? The Greek and monastic theological traditions are important to him. So he's quoting people like Maximus the Confessor, Dionysius, and then the more sort of ascetical fathers of the church. And it's important to see that these traditions are basically summed up in St. Thomas. So some people are very resistant to this idea that Thomas would be a sort of compendium of patristic teaching. And that very resistance to Thomas was one of the pillars of the mid-20th century move towards the fathers. They were like, Thomas is everywhere. He's blocking us from getting to the early church. We need to jump over Thomas and get back to the fathers. So there was this ideology of Thomism as an impediment to the fathers, But this has basically been debunked by now. Uh, Thomas was a careful reader of the Fathers. He was interested in reading the councils. He was uh, very attentive to Greek thought, which he was getting new Latin translations of deliberately through another Dominican so that he could consider the Greek strand of the tradition. So this is an implicit pillar, though, of the theology which von Balthasar kind of belongs to, the school of thought. And we see this also in Ratzinger. So Ratzinger knows Thomas very well. He is, uh, he is a great interlocutor for Thomas because he knows what he's doing. He knows exactly where the Thomas lines are, and he's sort of dodging them. And he seeks to overcome Thomas not by an open opposition, but by proposing new Balthasarian principles. So what are these Ratzingerian, Balthasarian principles that I want to describe? 
One is the primacy of the personal. So I and thou as primary categories of understanding. And in this, you can see that this idea of an encounter with a person through the senses is closely related to beauty, so attraction. So he likes to emphasize that the truth is not a concept, it's a person. And in meeting this person, we are attracted to it. This has, along with it, a kind of liturgical ethics. So that the scriptures and the way that they are most beautifully enshrined, that is the liturgy, are the place where we meet Christ. We meet him and we, are, we fall in love with him. There's also in this tradition, not as important, but something to note, a platonic avoidance of the natural law reasoning of Thomas and his school in favor of these other sort of spiritual exercises. So we want to, like, in certain senses, meet the modern world, and that means to sort of put the scholastic world behind us. And so we need new spiritual roads to God. So in a way, beauty, the encounter with beauty is, is like emblematic of this idea of like new spiritual exercises. So the beauty of Christ's face, which appears to us in the liturgy, in the Eucharist, in the scriptures, the breaking of the bread, as in the Gospel of Luke, this is the glory that must instruct us. A glory that in the thinking of von Balthasar is primary. So von Balthasar was very concerned about the Kantian movements of German thought, which had taken over the way that people approached the truth. And in a Kantian approach, conceptual, intelligible engagement with the world begins with um, an almost sort of Newtonian approach to things. There is absolute space and time. We're able to approach it through categories of our understanding which flow from the mind itself. And through that, we're going to establish all of knowledge, come up with a universal science. It's very important that we do this because then we can have world peace. It's going to be awesome. So we're kind of still living in this Kantian world in some ways. Um, and von Balthasar was rebelling against this. So von Balthasar's approach is very anti-modern, anti-Kant in this way. And he said, Kant, in his system, gets to beauty sort of at the end. He's like, once we've figured out all the science stuff, we'll get to like how we think things are beautiful. And he has an interesting and sophisticated account in the critique of judgment. But that's the third critique. Von Balthasar wanted to take the beauty stuff and put it right in the front. So von Balthasar's theology is about glory, the glory of the Lord, meeting the Lord, being overwhelmed by his beauty, and letting that guide our whole approach to theology. So, I won't try too much to talk about how this is like an attempt to address the school of the Thomists, nor how it can be resolved, but it can. And others have sort of undertaken this work very ably, so you can find that elsewhere. But I just want to spotlight the role of liturgical beauty, so the beauty of the liturgy. So I agree that God makes his divinity known in the liturgy, and especially in the sacraments. So the cultivation of reverent spiritual sacrifice on our part, along with fitting liturgical rites, is a strength that belongs to both the Benedictine and the Dominican traditions. However, without trying to stress like a grievous distinction, I just want to highlight that in the Dominican tradition, the beauty of the liturgy is subordinated to grace and the moral life. So grace and moral perfection, which are closely united for St. Thomas, are the dominating thing. And litur liturgical experience of beauty is also important, but it's more sort of a supportive subordinate thing. So there's a Benedictine theologian today, Alcuin Reed, who highlights how Aquinas' theories of law and custom are useful for arguing for like stable liturgical customs, liturgical practice as something which has legal force, and that's true. 
He also references uh, Thomas's question 83 of the third part of the Summa. So in 83, Thomas is talking about the rite of the Eucharist, and he argues for the fittingness of many of the details. So this is a very beautiful series of arguments where he goes through the different aspects of the liturgy and explains why they're fitting in very meaty theological conceptual terms. So it's kind of gratifying if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but besides law and besides the right, I just want to suggest that there are many deeper principles of worship which can be drawn from the Thomistic school, especially Thomas's sacramental theology. So Thomas gives an extensive treatment of the sacraments. For Thomas, the sacraments are the pillars of the church. They are the means which Christ has established for the perpetuation, the extension of his physical presence in the world. And because his humanity is such a powerful thing for Thomas, the sacraments, extending that humanity, are central principles of making human beings good and making the liturgy beautiful. So the beauty of the liturgy resides principally in the sacraments. In the sacraments, Christ as God and as man, both, works through what Dionysius calls sacred veils, adapting the divine power to human modes of experience, making his power present through human actions that overflow throughout time. And this fills, this fills all of time. So we hear at the Easter liturgy, the, the incision on the Easter candle, all time belongs to him. Christ is making time captive to himself through the, through the sacraments. He is really present in the world, making his dominion real through the sacraments, through time, filling the centuries with the presence of God. So the liturgical movement uh, today suffers from a little bit of discomfort with the theology of von Balthasar. This is sort of anecdotal, but von Balthasar's theology is kind of daring and proposes some things which more dogmatically um, traditional people see as difficulties. So there's a little discomfort, there's a little fidgeting in terms of von Balthasar, and then by extension of Ratzinger. So Ratzinger is this great ecclesial champion of liturgy, but people are a little bit uncomfortable with Ratzinger's Balthasarianness. Okay, so I think that St. Thomas can be sort of a peacemaker. Since Thomism and liturgical movement are friends now, and von Balthasar is an important influence on Ratzinger, who is so important to the liturgical life of the church in recent history, we want to make peace. We want to bring these things into harmony. That's the Thomist move. The ascetical life of the fathers, which Fagerberg uh, emphasizes as important for our harmonious living out of the grace of the liturgy, the ascetical life, as described by the fathers, is for St. Thomas the life of the cardinal virtues. So Thomas, in his theory of the virtues, makes the teaching of the fathers and the teaching of Aristotle work together all for bringing the Christian soul into order, organizing it, giving its powers vigor, and preventing them from being impeded by sin. He draws many voices into the purification of these powers, and so these powers. So I just want to give a brief, hopefully brief, uh, account of the theology of grace and the moral life that can be useful for liturgical thinking. So part three, the theology of grace and the moral life. I've talked a little bit already about how sacraments have this centrality in the liturgy. Why are they central? They're central because, okay, so for Aristotle, if you have problems, if you are vicious and not virtuous, there's not a lot you can do. Aristotle's philosophy of the human being has a certain fatalism to it. Virtue is mostly taught through very practical education in youth, and the study of virtue, the science of virtue, has mostly to do with figuring out why virtuous people are virtuous. There's not a lot of room for growth. 
Why is that? You might say it's because there is no grace. So grace is what makes an increase in virtue possible. Grace makes it possible to receive virtues which are supernatural, but it also makes the natural virtues, which Aristotle discusses, capable of improvement. And in both of these, supernatural and natural virtues, we are working together with God. God is making us capable of working with him as his instruments to work on ourselves. And so it's like, okay, do you want this grace? You should want it. It'll make you good. How are you going to get it? Basically, you're going to get it through the sacraments. So Jesus was not vague about this. He made the sacraments a permanent means of grace, and he perpetuated them through his church, and they've been enshrined in the liturgy. So it's good for us just to sort of see why spiritual grace flows from the liturgy. It's because of our participation in the sacraments, which then make us able to improve in the moral life. Uh, so if you look at the texts on your handout, I just want to show you something that was a big deal in Thomas's own life. So the first text is from St. Augustine. This is known by two different names. Uh, St. Augustine has letters, many of which are like whole books. So his epistles, Epistle 211, was used in the Middle Ages as a rule. So the rule of St. Benedict was the way that the monks lived their lives. The Dominicans, St. Dominic, adopted the rule of St. Augustine because this was the form of life that he had practiced before founding his order. So the rule of St. Augustine gives detailed instructions, well, not very detailed instructions, less detailed instructions about how to live, but a lot of sort of spiritual exhortation. That's kind of the strength of the rule of St. Augustine. There's, you can sort of read the philosophy and theology of St. Augustine in this rule. So what we do as Dominicans is we read it aloud at dinner. So we hear frequently the rule of St. Augustine. It's something that, you know, when you're eating, something's happening to your body. I think it makes you well disposed to listen to texts. And uh, it, it gets, it really sinks in there. So the rule of St. Augustine is, uh, we're, we're, we have it in our bones. So, okay, here's a passage from towards the end of the rule of St. Augustine. The Lord grant that you may observe all these precepts in the spirit of charity, so charity is central for Augustine, as lovers of spiritual beauty, giving forth the good odor of Christ in the holiness of your lives. The love of spiritual beauty is what I want to emphasize as a guide for our participation in the liturgy. So that spiritual beauty is the goal. So all of the beauty of the liturgy, all of the beauty of the sacraments, is for the sake of making the worshipers beautiful the way that the worship is beautiful. So beauty in the liturgy is good. It's not useless. It's ordered towards the beauty of the soul so that through this participation in beauty, we are participating in God and becoming, like God, good. Okay, so I've brought up the goodness of God. What's more important, goodness or beauty? This is a big dispute. Whether beauty can be a primary principle of thought like goodness. So goodness in the classical tradition is a transcendental, meaning that it is coextensive with existence itself, and we can relate especially the goodness of God to his being the source of being. Some people want to say the same thing about beauty, that beauty is coextensive with goodness. Other people say, well, Thomas doesn't say that. And there's a lot of problems with beauty. Beauty can be very dangerous. Beauty, classically, is something that you, you know, can really wreck your life going after beauty. I don't know if you like French poetry, but Baudelaire is all about this. Beauty is a, a, ro a rock statue that people just crush themselves. They run up against it, and they crush themselves, and they die. It's, you know, it's a monster. Okay, so that's, that's the extreme statement of the danger of beauty. Okay, so what do we do with beauty as Thomists? So the first 
principle for like looking at beauty in St. Thomas would be in the Summa. He's talking about God and addressing how beauty and goodness are equated in certain authorities. So this is the second text. Beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally, for they are based upon the same thing, namely the form. And consequently, goodness is praised as beauty. But they differ logically. For goodness properly relates to the appetite. Goodness goodness being what all things desire. So goodness is what is attractive, what makes us go after something. And therefore it has the aspect of an end, the appetite being a kind of movement towards a thing. So goodness is an end which attracts us. On the other hand, beauty relates to the cognitive faculty. So I won't go into like why he's talking about the cognitive stuff. We can sort of table that for now, but what he's about to say is basically the simplest definition of beauty that you're going to find in Thomas, and it's important. Beauty relates to the cognitive faculty, for beautiful things are those which please when seen. Obvious, simple, important. Beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence, beauty consists in due proportion, for the senses delight in things duly proportioned, as in what is after their own kind, because even sense is a sort of reason, just as is every cognitive faculty. Like I said, not going to talk about all that stuff. Now, since knowledge is by assimilation and similarity relates to form, beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. So goodness is a final cause, an end. Goodness draws us. So God's goodness is very important because it draws us. We proceeded from him as his creatures, and he's drawing us back to himself, and that is our salvation, the fact that he has drawn us to himself. Beauty is not an end in this sense. Beauty is not a good. It's not simply the same. They differ logically. And beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. The formal cause means what makes a thing be what it is, and it has a certain intelligibility, order, and appearance. So beauty, and that makes sense. So now we can look at things and be like, well, this thing is beautiful. It's not necessarily good, but it has beauty. And its beauty is a certain attractiveness in a certain sense, but not as goodness, more just as, I don't know, it's hard to define, harmony, glory, uh, loveliness, joy, something like that. Okay. So this is not necessarily obvious in connection with grace, but I want to draw this connection to grace. So moving on to the next text, we're now moving far along into the Summa, Thomas has talked about virtue. He has talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a lot of important stuff, and now he's talking about grace. So question 110 in the Prima Secundae. Thomas is arguing that grace is not like a thing in the soul, not like this thing that's dripping into your soul and now you have a reservoir of it, but a quality, meaning that you have a soul and without grace you're soul is lacking a certain way of being, a qualitative aspect. And then when you receive grace and are saved and justified, your soul itself has a new quality. Okay. Grace, as a quality, is said to act upon the soul, not after the manner of an efficient cause. So it's not changing it as the way fire changes a loaf of bread but after the manner of a formal cause, as whiteness makes a thing white, and justice just. Moving right along to the second question, the second phrase, um, text about grace here on this sheet, grace is said to make pleasing, not efficiently, but formally, that is, because thereby a man is justified and is made worthy to be called pleasing to God, according to Colossians 1.21, he hath made us worthy to be made partakers of the lot of the saints in light. So grace has made us pleasing to God. Why has grace made us pleasing to God? Because grace has transformed our soul 
after the manner of a formal cause. Do you see where this is leading? So the soul is being changed, being given a new formal aspect, a quality that makes it pleasing. Why is it pleasing? Well, because it's beautiful now. Beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause, second text, and beautiful things are those which please when seen. So very simple, but also very powerful. Grace makes us beautiful. Beauty makes us pleasing to God. So the beauty of the soul, which is communicated by God, as a form of becoming like him through his son, makes us beautiful. Next text. As may be gathered from the words of Dionysius, beauty or comeliness results from the concurrence of clarity and due proportion. For he states that God is said to be beautiful as being the cause of the harmony and clarity of the universe. Clarity means shininess, basically. Hence, the beauty of the body consists in a man having his bodily limbs well proportioned together with a certain clarity of color. Okay. In like manner, spiritual beauty consists in a man's conduct or actions being well proportioned in respect of the spiritual clarity or glory of reason. Okay. So now we're talking about God being beautiful, us becoming like God, and that being spiritual beauty. Okay, so now we have arrived at what St. Augustine was talking about, what St. Thomas may very well have in mind, being lovers of spiritual beauty, seeking to become spiritually beautiful. Now this, you may have noticed, is yet further along in the Summa. We are now in the second part of the second part, and this is actually a question about the virtue of temperance. So we're talking about the transformation of the soul to become beautiful, which before was like a thing about grace. Grace extends into the moral life, making the moral virtues organized and vigorous. Okay, so grace, we can sort of hear the same vocabulary being used, but now we're talking about the natural virtue, the cardinal virtue of temperance. St. Thomas likes to divide virtues into their parts because that's how he can understand them better. So along with the tradition, there's disagreements about how to divide them. Temperance is nice because it just has, as far as parts which make it up, parts which are the parts that are necessary for it to be full and itself. The parts of temperance are honesty, which is a word that sounds kind of funny to us, and shamefacedness. So shamefacedness is like being unwilling to do dishonorable or intemperate things, so avoidance of the evil. But honesty, or honestas, is simple desire for goodness, for, for pleasure, for well-ordered enjoyment. So this is what he means by honesty. And in an earlier question, he says, in a certain sense, this is just virtue. Being attracted to the right things in the right measure without being overly indulgent in them, <clears throat> this is what makes a virtuous person glorious. It's the sort of honor that flows from virtue and makes people recognize it and love it. So he says, now this is what is meant by honesty, which we have stated to be the same as virtue. And it is virtue that moderates, according to reason, all that is connected with man. So, I wanted to bring up the idea of temperance, and there's a little bit more you can read about on this, this sheet. But we'll sort of skip to the end, uh, just to tie things up here. The last text, grace suffices for a man. Is all that we need in life grace? In a certain sense, yes, sola gratia. Why not? But we need to make distinctions. Grace suffices for a man, for all whereby he is ordained to beatitude. Nevertheless, it affects some of these by itself, uh, that is, to make him pleasing to God. We've talked about that, and the like. And some others, 
through the medium of the virtues which proceed from grace. So the medium of the virtues which proceed from grace. This question is about whether Jesus himself had virtues. Jesus as a human being, did he need to have virtues? Thomas thinks so. Because virtues extend the outworking of grace in the soul. So all that is beautiful about grace wants to make the rest of the human soul beautiful. And temperance is the principle of spiritual beauty. So if we want to become lovers of spiritual beauty, to give forth the odor of Christ, as St. Augustine says, we want to be clothed in virtues, the virtue of especially temperance, which has a universal scope with regard to beauty. It sees what is beautiful and it enjoys it with measure and with instincts that do not go across the line, okay, so that keep things within bounds. So I'll end by relating this to something that David Fagerberg says in his liturgical asceticism book. If liturgy means sharing the life of Christ, being washed in his resurrection, eating his body, and if ascesis means discipline in the sense of forming, discipleship, then liturgical asceticism is the discipline required to become an icon of Christ and make his image visible in our faces. So through the virtues, we receive the beautification of grace, and especially in our desire for beauty, measured by temperance, we become an icon of Christ, who is not only perfect love, but also perfect temperance, and who is able to see in the beauty of creation the principles of our own justice, salvation, and to make those available, available to us through the grace of his sacraments. Thanks for your attention.